I have, I have one announcement for you. Um, <clears throat> well, actually, I got two. First one is I actually found out yesterday I have bronchitis. My wife, my, I never go to the doctor. Well, I go to the doctor when I try to cut up my fingers. Um, but I, my wife yesterday, she's a nurse, and so she says, as I'm sitting there, she's all, "Man, you, this thing is just slowly getting worse." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, it's slowly getting worse." And, and she goes, "You might have like walking pneumonia." And I go. Sounds worse than it is, I guess. So we go down to the urgent care thing, and apparently I got bronchitis. So they gave me some steroids, which it's going to make me roid out any moment. So apparently steroids just make you angry. <clears throat> but it's supposed to help with this. It is not helping with this. I just, oh, whatever, I'm living with it. So my announcement I got, don't make me, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. No. Uh, no, so my announcement is if you would like to get baptized, we're doing our next baptize, baptisms on September 1st. Uh, it's Labor Day weekend, and if you have been thinking about it, if you want to become a member at Element, you, you need to be baptized, not at Element, just at some point in your life. But if you've never been baptized, it's one of the things that Jesus called us to do as a public proclamation of our faith. A lot of times people say things like, you know, what is Jesus calling me to do? Well, if you've never been baptized, Jesus calls us to be baptized. It's, a, again, this public proclamation, and so this one is done with every, we're inviting everybody from Element to come. We're going to, like apparently we always do, we're going to try dipping bread because we're heart healthy. And you're all, again, you're all welcome to come. It's, these are the ones where we want you know, uh, two, three hundred people there and join the baptisms with one another. It's a great big party. People get baptized. We have you put your story out ahead of time so you don't have to say it while you're sitting there getting baptized or anything like that. So low pressure there. But if you would like to be baptized, sign up at the Welcome Center. Someone will get a hold of you. They'll meet with you about it beforehand and stuff. And we just love to be able to do it and hang out with you. So you, if you're not getting baptized, you put it on your calendar anyway to come and hang out with us. Nobody's writing that down. Hey, Siri, September 1st, Labor Day weekend. We'll give you directions. Don't, don't yell at me. Uh, one fifteen. I hope Sarah listens to this podcast so she writes down what time I just said. Or it might change. Close to one-ish. All right. If you are new to Element, welcome. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. They look like this. They're half sheets. And on one side, you get a place to write down some notes if you'd like to, if I don't put you to sleep. On the back side, you'll get some questions to go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is John chapter 2, verse 11, and it says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to understand the miracles you do, the manifestation of your glory, and it would lead us to be a people who believe, who trust in the things that you have said, and trust what you've called us into in our lives. And we would honor you by how we live out these great lives of grace that you have given us. Uh, teach us to understand all those things, especially as we talk through what we do today. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this little series at Element throughout the summer before we hit the second part of the book of Ecclesiastes in the fall. We're calling it I Believe in Miracles. It's about the miracles in the Bible, what they mean, uh, what they don't mean. Uh, You have to understand that God has set up the world with certain natural laws to function in certain ways. This is how science actually works because we understand that there are laws set up and they work a certain way. Unless you know about things like quarks, quarks don't ever do what you think they're supposed to do. But other than that, they kind of work out pretty well. And for God to step in and to 
you suspend natural laws to do something, it must be very important. It must serve a purpose. And it's probably greater than we can imagine on our own. And this is why I think at the end of the miracle we look at today, which is where Jesus will turn water into wine, John ends with these words after the miracle. John 2.11, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the miracle that we talk about today is ultimately about God's glory, as everything is, and it leads to belief. And belief is more than just a feeling. Belief in the scriptures is this word that connotates trust. We're trusting him because of what he has done. So open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to jump around a bit because whenever you hit Jesus turning water into wine, there's a few things you've got to talk about so people don't misunderstand what you're saying. And then at the end, we're going to round this out with something else. So the first three miracles that are done in the book of John are directly related to the three gods in this area called Asia Minor. Uh, Asia Minor is where John wrote his gospel to. It's where he wrote his gospel from. The first major god was a god named Dionysus. Dionysus also goes the name of Bacchus. Uh, Bacchus is the god of wine and debauchery and partying. There are even accounts where Bacchus turned water into wine, although those accounts actually come about after Jesus. Uh, the second god in this area is known as Asclepius. Asclepius is the god of healing. And even if you go to a lot of medical places today, you'll have that little swirly snake around the stick. That's actually the symbol for Asclepius. And then uh, Demeter was the third god in this area. And they, this was the goddess of grain or bread. So when John starts his story, John will start with Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, he will go on to heal some people that nobody else could heal. And then he will feed thousands of people with a couple fish and a few loaves of of bread. What he's trying, John is doing, having this agenda where he wants people in this place and this time to know that Jesus was real, that he walked on this earth, and he is true and, yes, better than their false gods. And I think it's really interesting that the first miracle in John that Jesus does isn't feeding the poor, not that the poor aren't important. Uh, it wasn't healing the sick or raising the dead, which also it could be important. The first miracle he does is keeping the party going. I think that's awesome. And it kind of tells you who God himself is. Now, I have covered this story two to three times over the last 10 years. I've got to cover some things I talked about before, but I want to take it in a totally different direction towards the end. Uh, Because a lot of people misunderstand Elman a lot and our stance on alcohol because of things like this, a lot of people think we're way too liberal about it. Let me first tell you what the miracle does not mean. It does not mean that you get to go out and have a week-long bender in the name of Jesus. Okay, That's not what this is telling you. Now, why do I say that? Well, because a wedding festivity at this time lasted about a week. This is an honor and shame culture, and people would show up for a wedding for a week. They travel long distances to get to these places, so you had to house them and feed them, and people would drink this whole week long. That's why I say what I said in that. I mean, can you imagine, right? Just I, I would starve myself for a month before I show up to your wedding. I'd be like, yeah, I'm here now, and I would eat you out of house and home. I'd bring my elastic waistband pants because I'm going to fill them up. I would, you know, I'd leave my own zip code by the time we we're done with all this because I'm going to eat you out of house home. And if you couldn't take care of all of these people, it would bring shame upon your family. Everybody shows up to these things to make up for lost time. And while they're there, this couple runs out of wine at this wedding festivity. And so this happened, John 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. It doesn't say why. She's apparently helping. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said, 
said to him, they have no wine. Now, when Jesus makes water into wine, it's seemingly going to help these people at this party to maintain their buzz. And a lot of people have a problem with that if you didn't know. Okay, This has led some people to say that the wine that Jesus made here wasn't fermented. What he really made was pure grape juice because the best, best wine is pure grape juice, says no one who has ever had wine. Okay? The problem with that is that there are words in the Greek for grape juice, and this is not one of those words. Uh, the word here for wine is fermented from the vine. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God does prescribe feasts for his people, and at these feasts, they would eat and they would drink and they would worship God for his provision. The book of Psalms, it sings it like this. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. That's a song. And if anyone tries to convince you that the Bible is against alcohol, they are clearly wrong. The wine is spoken as a gift from God 214 times in the scriptures. It is alcohol is used in celebration, in worship, and in marital intimacy. But we are also told in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. This then would relate to that God called Bacchus. People drank too much, they got involved with what Bacchus wanted, which was debauchery. Stay away from that. What he's saying is don't lose control. And too often today, people come to this issue and we take one side or the other on the far extreme. And one person says, it's okay to drink because Jesus made water into wine. And then we lose control and we imbibe in a way that does not honor God at all. Guys, we should not drink as much as we want whenever we want because it's not good for your body and ultimately it's not good for your soul. And because alcohol has been misused so much in our culture today, I could give you the statistics on that. Other people run to the complete opposite direction of this, and they say you should never drink. It's a sin. You might cause someone to stumble. Look, i got to tell you, as believers, we're called to respond with wisdom and with temperance. We're not extremists. We live in the truth even when the truth is hard. C.S. Lewis says, heresy is the truth taken too far, something that's good that goes too far. As an example, the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they love to read the scriptures. Doing that is a great thing. I would encourage that for all of you. Read your Bible. But they get to this place where they realize in the Bible it says stay away from sin. And so they equated that with sinful people. If I'm around sinful people, then I can't stay away from sin. And so they stopped hanging around with anybody they considered sinful. The very people that God called them to bless and to serve and bring to know who he was, they stayed away from. Heresy is that truth taken too far. Is it okay to drink? Yes. Can we go too far? Yes. Is it sin to be a drunkard? Yes. But can you say everybody who has drinking alcohol in the history of the world was in sin? No. God gives these bookends. Don't get drunk. Don't judge those who abstain. We're supposed to love one another in the church, and whatever you people have, we can come alongside one another and love each other. This is an open-handed issue. Okay. In Isaiah, it will speak about this great homecoming where God serves choice food and wine, meat to his church, wine and meat. That used to be called the Atkins diet. Now it's called keto. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it is a low view of Scripture and a twist of the word of God to claim anything different. Everything God made is good. It depends upon how we use it. And usually when I say things like that, people want to argue with me, and then they come and they say, well, what about smoking pot? What about it, right? Okay, the, the Bible doesn't really talk about pot directly. There's no word in the Bible that says pot, okay? But a lot of potheads go and they like to look, sorry, a lot of people smoke pot, like to go and look in the scriptures and they say, well, God made everything good, every seed-bearing plant. And uh, the other verse I know is don't judge, right? They throw those two together and say, what do I do with that? <laughs> yeah, so look, 
My job is not to try and convince you not to smoke pot. That, that, that's not my job here, okay? Uh, people will come along and they will say, uh, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so you shouldn't drink or smoke. And they don't even look at all the things they put in their own body when they eat, okay? So what I'm not saying to you is you're fat and you don't drink enough. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying, here's my thoughts on pot, okay? I don't like it. Uh, I think it smells bad. I think people who smoke pot have no idea they smell like pot. They're like, no, yeah, I don't smell like pot. You smell like pot, okay? You, you do. You get out of your car, it's like, whoa, what happened in there? You know, it's, we can smell it. We, we know it's there. And so here's the goal. If your whole goal of smoking pot is to get high, that's wrong. Just like if your whole goal is, is by drinking beer or wine or, or hard liquor is to get drunk, well, that's a problem. That's a problem. I like beer. My wife doesn't. My wife likes wine. I don't. But the point of alcohol should not be to get wasted. The whole thing when we wanted to make pot legal across the country, but especially in California, is the whole idea that, hey, we're going to smoke pot so we can get high. The whole point of it was to get high. You can have a beer and pair it with something at dinner or a glass of wine. You don't have to get wasted to where you can't walk. Most people who want to smoke pot want to do it because they want to get high. And what I'm saying is there are questions that must be answered in everything we do, not just with smoking pot, not just with alcohol, but the questions are, does a thing master us? Does it master us? Is it good for you? Paul will say all things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. So we can ask that about everything, not just pot and drink, but about food and sleep and work and vitamins and how we drive, because we are supposed to be consistent in everything that we do. Does that make sense? Okay, this half of the room, the rest half of you go listen to the sermon online. Okay, all this is to say that the miracle we're looking at today Okay, again, it's not about a week-long bender. It's about this. It's not about this treatise on alcohol. What it is about, if you've been an element any length of time, you know where we're going. It is about redemption and salvation and Jesus and God's glory. That's what the miracle is about. In Jesus' day, when you ate or drank with somebody, that was friendship. If you refused to eat or drink with somebody, that was disrespect and it meant you rejected them. Everything in Jesus' culture what was what we would call value-laden. Everything had a value to it. This couple is going to to experience guilt and shame because they will not be able to take care of all the people who have come to their wedding. That shame will be laid upon their family. And so Jesus' mom goes to Jesus, and this is what happens. They've run out of wine. Do something. What Jesus says to her is this, verse 4, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, I know in our culture here, woman, oh, what's that, right? This is a term of endearment. Jesus will even say this to his mom from the cross, okay? If I came to you and I said, woman, make me a sandwich, I can get punched in the face. But that's, that's not what's happening here. Term of endearment, okay? He says, my hour has not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's like, he's like, my hour hasn't come. She looks at everybody else, strong Jewish woman, always in control. Do what he tells you, right? Got to do what he told you. Okay. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, one of the ways you know that Jesus is rescuing this couple from shame is the fact that he deliberately chooses these water jars, these jars for Jewish rites of purification. These jars are used for ceremonial washing. The Jewish people had a ceremonial sacrificial system, and they would come together and they would wash, or they would go sacrifice animals in the temple. And at the temple, you would bring your own animal for your family, so it was communal, but you would still do it with all these other people there. It was a communal way, not just to bring you closer to God, but closer to one another. And that's what these jars are there for as well. You're washing yourself, being cleansed from sin. Jesus takes those containers, used for purification, and uses it to bring and take, uses it to take away the guilt and shame from this couple. 
See, what Jesus here is really saying is that we have guilt and shame that has separated us from who God has called us to be, and he is going to take care of that. What he says is, I have come to bring the reality to what all of these ceremonial and sacrificial rites only point to. I have come to bring true cleansing from sin. I'm coming to bring the reality to which these things only point to. And so he will rescue them. Now, there are these two things. First off, guilt. Okay, guilt is like painful regret over something that we have said or done. At times, guilt can be a good thing that will drive us to do the right thing. On the other side of that, there's this thing called shame. And shame is terrible. What shame does is it wants to redefine who you are. It will tell you, you're not a child of God. You're not rescued by his grace. What you are is, uh, you're a pothead. You're a drunkard. You're a, you're a liar. You're a thief. You're an adulterer. It always wants to change your identity, and it's not good. Shame will make you want to hide yourself and what you're going through from other people so they don't really get to know who you are deep inside because you're shameful about who you feel you are. It is okay to feel guilt, but we must rid ourselves of shame. And the only way we do that is by really trusting all the things that Jesus has truly spoken over us by his death and resurrection. And so this goes back to the conversation where Jesus' mom is saying, they've run out of wine, help them. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The gospel of John is loaded with imagery, just loaded with it. And so when you hear this word, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, Jesus in the gospel is always referring to his crucifixion and resurrection. It's almost like she comes to him and says, they ran out of wine. And he's like, I'm not ready to die. It's like, what? Right? What's going on? So why does this request to keep the wedding feast going make him think about his ultimate death? And the answer to that is really the history of the whole Bible. Buckle up. Okay, so in the Old Testament, which is the first half of your Bible, we call this the Hebrew Scriptures, God constantly calls himself the bridegroom of his people. He is the groom, we are the bride. Not that God is referring to if you're a dude in the room, I don't want to be called a girl. He's not calling you a girl. He's, he's, a, he's a, a groom that comes and rescues us from our guilt and our shame and all those places. Sometimes he calls himself a king, but he doesn't want just a king relationship to his people. He wants a love relationship with his people, and that's why he calls himself the groom of his bride. It's why when Israel sins, he will say you are committing adultery against me because it's his bride. And you fast forward to the New Testament in Matthew 9, people are complaining about Jesus' disciples, that his disciples never fast. John the Baptist's disciples are always praying, fasting, repenting, trying to get closer to God. They look like somebody beat them up all the time. And they look at Jesus' followers who never ever fasted, who's always eating and drinking, and they say, your guys aren't very spiritual. Your guys aren't doing what we're doing. We're holy. Be like us. And Jesus says in Matthew 9, 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And if you know who Jesus is today, you look back and it makes total sense to us. Yeah, he is the great groom. He's the bridegroom. He's rescuing his bride. The church, it's all logical. But for the Jews, that is mind-blowing because he is calling himself the bridegroom of, Revel- of, of his bride, of the church, of Israel. In the book of Revelation, when you get to the end, John, the writer of Revelation, also the writer of this gospel account, records this vision that shows how history is going to end. Want to know how it ends? It's with a wedding feast, Jesus' wedding day, where he brings his bride pure and clean before him. The fact that Jesus calls himself the bridegroom points to the idea that he is our rescuer, that he is coming for his bride. He covers our sin. You may have heard these words before if you've been in church or around Christians any length of time, like Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe him, you're covered by his blood. You're washed in the blood of the lamb. God accepts you now. You know, those are great words. Okay? They're very, very important words. But sometimes we say them, and they begin to lose their meaning, especially in a culture who doesn't understand what that means. It's why I'm not a big fan of bumper stickers or pithy church signs, because only people 
on the inside of the church knows what that even means whatsoever. And if you're a believer and you spend time around other Christians, eventually you come up with sort of shorthand, right? You have certain words that you use. And it's not bad, but we also have to know when we shouldn't use that anymore and people aren't going to understand what we're saying. Like if you say, I am covered with the blood of Jesus, that is a great and awesome truth if you understand what it means. If you don't know what it means, it sounds like you just killed somebody and you're trying to wash their blood off your hands. See, it's all, and this is why God many times will talk to the scriptures and use metaphors. And this metaphor of a bridegroom and a bride even comes to us today. Now, I've done my fair share of weddings, and I would venture to say that I have seen as many brides as anybody in this room, hopefully probably even more, uh, maybe unless you're a wedding photographer, then you've probably seen more than me, but, but I've seen an awful lot of brides. I get a very unique perspective on when I see them, because I'm usually standing right next to the groom, like the groom usually stands right here, and I stand right here. And so we get the, I get the view every time a bride comes walking down that corner. If you've been to a wedding, you're all standing up looking at everybody else and you can't see her. I, well, you know, me and the groom, we're like, boom, she comes around that corner. And I get to see her and he gets to see her and everybody sees her in all of her glory. It's like, right? Now, when that happens, I got to tell you, grooms lose their mind, right? They do not. There's another word for that. We're not going to use it here. Uh, but grooms just go, they just lose it completely. Like I have seen grooms who are like, they just keep talking. And then the bride walks around the corner and they're like, and they stop talking. Some grooms are totally silent. She comes around the corner, and they're like, and they like just start stammering. As some grooms, it's hilarious. The bride comes around the corner, and they're like, uh, and they just start walking. It's like, wait till she gets to the front. Wait till she, and I'm like, hold on, killer, right? I was in this way. I was doing a wedding a couple weeks ago, and there's the guy, and he's, he's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, and I go, She's going to walk around the corner in just a second, and this is when you're going to lose it if you're going to lose it. And he's like, oh, I'm good. She walks around the corner, and he's all, Because that's where it happens. That's, that's where it is. Now, here's what I notice about brides. Okay? Every woman knows that they have imperfections about them. You may not see it. You may not notice it. But every woman can look in a mirror and see all the places that they deem their imperfections. And when looking forward to a wedding day, they will spend weeks or months thinking about how I'm going to cover all of these blemishes and imperfections. And no matter what a woman looks in real life, you know, when, they, when they turn that corner and come out as a bride, everyone will say, she looks amazing. You know why? Because she does. It's not just a compliment. It's true because she has spent all this time thinking about all of these things in her life. They, I mean, every little bit. There's a dab of powder here, cover up there, all that. All the imperfections are covered. And then when she comes around that corner, again, like I said, the grooms don't know what to do with themselves. They just lose their mind. Oh, it's like, you know, it's, it's this amazing thing that happens. So this is the metaphor that God uses because we still understand it today. That God is our great groom. That Jesus takes that title for himself. That he is like a groom. And he will give himself for his bride to bring her and restore her to him. He delights in us. He wants to run to us just like those grooms who lose their mind want to run to their bride when they come around the corner. He longs to run to us and to rescue us and save us. That's how he feels for us in a non-sexual way. The words that God uses for his people are words of intimacy and closeness. And there cannot be that intimacy there when sin separates us. And so what Jesus does is what he promised. That he would not just cover our blemishes, but he would remove them. And this is what he does in the cross of the resurrection. This is the heart of the good news of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. That Jesus dies and rises from the grave to remove our blemishes and our imperfections. Not just cover them, but take them away. And we get to have a relationship with him again because of what he has done. 
In Revelation chapter 21, it's about the city of God, the corporate people of God coming down as a bride dressed for her husband. Again, guys, that doesn't mean you have to wear a dress. It's all metaphorical, okay? But at the very end of this, there's this call that comes out. Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day, those who have loved Jesus, we will fall into his arms. There will be a feast to end all feasts and joy to end all joys. And it goes on and on. And John indicates that when Jesus responds to Mary with this request to help this couple, he's looking forward to his hour, the cross, the resurrection, will bring all of this into being. Him being our great bridegroom, he restores his bride and what it's going to cost him. This is what he is thinking about. And so he does this miracle. He sees these Jewish rites of purification jars, and that's what he fills up. And he makes water into wine, not just as an idea to cover our sin, but to cleanse it and remove it. And I hope you see the amazingness of that moment, of where Jesus' mind goes when he thinks about doing this miracle. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, that's the miracle, but the point of the miracle is so much deeper. As I, I love Tim Keller, you know that, and he will actually talk about this in a couple of places. He's got, he's got a sermon called The Lord of the Wine, a chapter in a book called The Feast, but he says this thing that I knew but didn't really stick to my mind until he said it. At this time, they didn't have wine glasses. They didn't have stemware. What they had are these cups. And throughout Jesus' life, he will constantly refer to these wine cups metaphorically about what he is going to do. In the Garden of Gethsemane is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. He's praying, sweating and bleeding, Matthew 26, 39. And going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, this cup. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here he is figuratively talking about this cup of God's wrath against sin. This idea that when we sin, and it's what evil and injustice and rebellion deserve, it deserves punishment. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to drink that cup. I am going to Take that. On the cross, he saves us from our guilt and shame from God by drinking that cup. Right before this, in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 8, Jesus drinks from a literal cup. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, uh, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Now, this is the third cup that would have been taken in what's called the Passover ceremony. So three cups of wine at this point. They drink that, and this is called the cup of blessing. What it's showing you is that Jesus takes the cup of God's curse and gives us the cup of blessing. That's what this whole thing is pointing towards. In other words, the wine represents his blood, even when he looks at these ceremonial containers, knowing what is going to happen to bring us true and lasting joy. Now, in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, you read these promises that God spoke centuries before Jesus ever came. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And this is what Jesus does when he dies and rises from the grave for us. This is what he thinks about and he points to when he makes water into wine. And I think, what would it be for us if we took this seriously? If we really thought about all that he did to rescue and save us, that he doesn't just you know, cover our spots and blemishes. He actually removes them. So when he sees us, he sees us restored in perfect beauty before him. 
I mean, I think in turn it would make us be a people who respond to him in love and faith because he first loved us. Now, I was trying to think of a way to end this, to bring all this together. And I was reading a bunch of different things like I always do. And I took something from each. I don't know where these came from at this point, but I got three different things from three different people. And I'm just going to kind of bring them together with this. Uh, The first one is this. Somebody said this. Any wine except the wine that Jesus brings will run out. I think what, what that means, you know, when you, is what do you look for, uh, for the joy in your life? What are you drinking to bring the joy to who you are? Like you may believe in God. You might say, oh, I believe in Christianity. You may say, I'm a Christian, but what's the real wine? Meaning, what's the joy? Is it your career? Is it a person? Is it a family? Is it a cause? Because if it's not Jesus, it will always run out. It will never, in the end, satisfy. Uh, you'll get angry. You'll try to manipulate people to give you what you think you want. You will always be dissatisfied if you don't find your life first in who Jesus calls us to be. The second thing somebody pointed out is Jesus' mom, where she says, do whatever he tells you. I mean, I, I love that that's, what, that's Mary's response, right? Just do, do what he tells you. I, we don't really know all Mary knew about Jesus. I mean, we, we know that, you know, I mean, I get conception, so she knows there's something special going on there. But all of her theology, she probably didn't have it figured out. And so when he says, it's not my hour, she's like, Okay, looks at the people, just do whatever he tells you, and walks out, right? But wouldn't that be a great thing for us if we just became a people who were like, we're just going to do what you tell us, whatever it is. I might be going through some hard things in my life. I might be drinking a cup that I do not particularly care for, and I don't understand what's going on with it, but I will trust you in whatever you call me to. We'll just do what he says. It'd be amazing to be a people like that. I mean, if you, if you have kids, you know, at some point your kid's going to want to try and help you do something you don't really want them to help you do, and... So if you're like five, they're like five, and you're like 35, and they're like, what's this, and what's that, and tell me this, and tell me that, and eventually you can say, you know what, in the end, I just can't explain it to you. you just going to have to do what I told you. And I think for us, as believers, many times I got to a place where we just do what he calls us to do out of love and grace. And the third thing somebody says is, learn to draw on God's promise of the gospel to help you deal with the troubles of the present. And this is, you know, again, to Jesus' death and resurrection, his restoration of us, what he did by drinking that cup for us and giving us the cup of blessing. Edmund Clowney writes this, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. So today we can sit amidst all this world's sorrows, sipping the coming joy. I think it's a great statement. Tim Keller says this, there's only one person in the universe who can give you everything your heart longs for. And if you believe in Jesus, he's waiting for you. I would say he gives you everything your heart truly needs. Real life, real relationship, real hope, real joy, like a wedding that never, ever has to end. I think the miracle of this moment is Jesus promises to die for all of our sins, all of our blemishes that separated us from God. He will take them away, not just cover them. Interesting, throughout the whole Old Testament, whenever it talks about this, it's this whole idea of uh, your sins being covered. They use the word atonement. Atonement was a covering. After Jesus dies and resurrects, it uses this different word. It's called propitiation. And propitiation means they've been taken away and you've been restored. It's not just covering. It's us and our restoration. And if you want to talk about anything that deals with personal purification, the only way that happens is through what Jesus did for us. We're not a people who gets to run out and try and figure it all out ourselves. You hear people say things like, oh, I could never go to church. God would strike me with lightning. Yeah, okay, anybody who's not a sinner, right, and didn't need to be saved is all going to be struck with lightning if that's how God works. I mean, we're all here. Let's see, one, two, three. Okay, it's grace, all right? If we want to be pure before God, we are pure because of what God has done. He has rescued. He has saved. He has made us pure by what he promised to do. That's what we look at. And this is what brings us to communion element every single week. It's a reminder of what God has done to rescue and purify us and cleanse us. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice to remind us of his blood that was shed for you 
and me. So we get to be a people who love him because he has first loved us. We get purity in his sight, not because we're so good, but because he gave his purity to us by dying for us. He gave us the cup of blessing. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There's going to be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, if you're in your life today and you have been you know, looking for ways to try and make yourself personally pure before God, right? I'm going to figure all this out. Oh, I'm going to do it. God's going to see how pure I am when I figure it all out. You're never going to figure it out. Right? We're all just going to be horrible failures our entire lives because we need to understand is that God does not base our purity before him and our success at following laws. We are made pure and clean before God by what Jesus has done. We simply trust what he has done, and we love and serve and follow him. And that changes how we live. It changes everything that we do because we're not trying to work off a list. We're not trying to make ourselves acceptable to God. We are living with the assurance that God has made us acceptable to him by what he himself has done. So we get to live in great freedom and joy. And if you are someone who has maybe struggled with that, you want to talk to somebody about that or pray with somebody about that, there'll be some leaders in the back to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to every door we give because giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done and how he moves our own hearts. And usually we have snacks outside. There are no snacks today because we're trying to twist your arm into buying tri-tip sandwiches to send kids to camp. Thus says the Lord. Okay, so you don't have to buy one. Just throwing that out there. Maybe someone will drop one. You can get off the floor. You know, three-second rule, whatever. Uh, but take some sermon notes maybe this week. And maybe if you do buy a sandwich, sit down with some people or go out this week and talk through some of those things. You know, what, what kind of ways in your life are you trying to make your own personal pureness before God and not really trusting the things that he has done? You know, what are, what are the cups that you have in your life right now that you're trying to drink that, just, that are steering your mind away from the cup of blessing that God has first given you? How can we be a people who begins to start to live in God's grace and kindness, understanding his rescue of us first and foremost of everything? Because that's the miracle, that Jesus wants us to see what he is doing to rescue us and that we would trust in him and there would be a party that goes on for eternity because we get to be his children, his family, returned, adopted, and go out into this world as an ambassador speaking of all the grace that we have received. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us And move us into places where we begin to understand your hope and grace and life that has been restored to us. I ask that you would take and begin to empty us of all of the things that we have partaken in. That have pulled our hearts and our minds away from who you are. And that you would fill us with the understanding of your hope and your grace. That your spirit would come in and revive, and renew, and restore us again. That we would begin to honor you. Not because we feel like we have to, but because we want to. Because we understand your great grace given to us. That we'd be undone by your goodness. And that we daily would drink the cup of your blessing. And live out in this world in ways that reflect who you are. And that we would look forward to the day of this great wedding supper where we eat and drink and laugh correctly. But up until then, I ask that you would continue to move us to a place where we just look forward to your hope and joy given and restored to us. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you for your hope. Have us live in it. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.